You are listening to CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. Stay tuned now for The Jazz Show with Gavin Walker, coming right up right now. Thank you. 
We would like to welcome you to another edition of The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. My name's Gavin Walker, and uh, ah, yes, we uh, made it to the studio <laughs> through the... Uh, through the maze of uh, construction out here at the University of British Columbia. Quite something, and uh, very interesting. Um, however, as a matter of fact, UBC really looks like a one big construction zone these days. And uh, there's so many changes out here, it's, it's quite amazing. Physical changes and uh, everything else. Mm-hmm. As per usual... We're going to begin this evening with our jazz feature. I'd just like to uh, introduce myself, of course. Uh, you probably surmised already. My name's Gavin Walker, and we're here for the next three hours with some of the very best in jazz music. And we're beginning with one, our jazz feature this evening is probably one of the most famous of all jazz artists. I think you could stop anybody on the street, young, old, and... Ask them if they've ever heard of Miles Davis, and I'm sure they would say yes. Now, this, this wouldn't apply to a lot of jazz musicians, but in the case of Miles Davis, very definitely. Um, I've even seen his name crop up in crossword puzzles, so <laughs> there you go. Miles, of course. Uh, Miles was famous for his personality, his complex personality. And sometimes that overshadowed what was really important about Miles Davis was his artistry and his music. And eventually, personality quirks and quirks and uh, uh, ups and downs and uh, all this kind of stuff will go by the wayside. In time, Miles has, hasn't uh, been deceased for very long. He died in 1991. But um, people still talk about his personality. But 50 years from now, that won't, none of that will matter. Only his music and his music will definitely live on for a long, long time. Miles Davis, one of the most uh, charismatic musicians and uh, a great, great band leader. Miles Davis's bands um, focused not necessarily on arrangements and um, 
uh, compositions, but they focused on the solo power of who, of the people that Miles hired for his band. And uh, that's what made these bands so great because Miles always picked the best people. We're going to go back uh, in history to 1964. As a matter of fact, Lincoln's birthday, 1964, February 12th. The United States was uh, in the midst of a lot of civil rights stuff that was happening. Uh, There was nasty stuff going down south. Um, There was the Vietnam War to deal with that was was looming. Uh, There was, the, of course, the assassination of President Kennedy that was still uppermost in the people's minds and all kinds of stuff. And this particular concert was one of the first to be held at the new Lincoln Center Philharmonic Hall in New York City. The concert was held on a Wednesday evening, Lincoln's birthday, February 12th, 1964. And it was a benefit concert for voter registration in Mississippi and Louisiana. And it was sponsored by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Congress for Racial Equality, CORE, and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. And all proceeds uh, were going to these organizations so that they could um, help um, register voters who should have been legally registered in the South, black voters. And Miles Davis offered his services and was going to do this and did this concert for free. And because he felt that it was something necessary, the price to get in to this concert was very high for the time. Tickets were $50, $75, which to, in today's money would be 300 350 bucks. You know, you figure it out. Um, it was a lot of money in those days to get in. But the Lincoln Hall, the Lincoln Center Hall was packed out. And the only problem was Miles performed for free. And, of course, the band was going to perform for free. They didn't know that they were performing for free until the evening of the concert. And, of course, Miles was independently wealthy. The other musicians were basically working stiffs. They needed the money. They weren't happy. A couple of them threatened to quit. And Miles said, well, you can. You go ahead. But, you know, I'm going to be getting a lot more work after this. You're cutting your own throat. The guys had a conference. They weren't happy. But nobody quit. Miles later on said everyone played so well at this concert because (laughs) feelings were agitated. And he said that's why the music happened. And he could be right. He mentioned this in his uh, well-known biography about this concert. One other thing that I didn't know until about a year later when I was uh, um, 
actually hanging out with with uh, Herbie Hancock and um, Tony Williams um, at the uh, a place called Basin Street West in San Francisco. They were playing there, and uh, it was after the gig, and we were sitting around uh, just chatting. And I asked Herbie about these records um, that came out, uh, the records of the concert that we're going to hear. And Herbie said, you know, amazingly enough, uh, he, he mentioned uh, about Miles uh, offering the band services for free and all that kind of stuff. But he said, one other thing happened. Lincoln Center was brand new at the time, and they hadn't worked out all the acoustic bugs in the place. And even though we did a, a sound check, once we got on and the audience came in and filled the place, we couldn't hear ourselves on the stage. And we had to use a lot of eye contact for cues and, and, and stuff, the whole band. And he said it was very much like the way the, um, the East Indians musicians play. They use eye contact a lot and give each other cues and signals. And he said we basically had to do that because we couldn't hear each other properly. He said we could hear each other but not the way we're used to. So he said it was very difficult. And he said, after that, the whole band, uh, we all knew that Columbia was, was going to be recording the whole concert. And we all said, you know, the concert's going to sound terrible. It's going to sound like, basically, it's going to sound like shit. And, and uh, it should never come out because we know it's going to sound awful. Anyway, he said, the irony is, he said, We'd, we listened to the tapes. Miles called a meeting, and we went to Columbia Studios to listen to the tapes. And he said, we were all blown away by how great the band sounded. Unbelievable. And we all cracked up. And Her Herbie looked at me and said, see, even musicians can be wrong. And, we, <laughs> and we, all, we all cracked up. So that's basically the background of this whole thing. The band... Um, is really the genesis of Miles' second great quintet. The rhythm section of Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, and Tony Williams, especially Tony Williams, the young 19-year-old drummer, virtually remade Miles Davis. Uh, Miles felt that he was getting stale in his playing and, and, and just playing the same old thing over and over and over again. It was when he got these guys, Carter, Hancock, and Tony Williams, they revitalized Miles and gave him a whole new spectrum where, where he could create on. They, they, they delivered a whole different uh, ballgame uh, rhythmically, and Miles was refreshed. The tenor saxophonist in the band was George Coleman, the great George Coleman, who uh, I believe is this year finally going to be recognized for his artistry um, by getting a MacArthur grant which means he's going to get $25,000 and a great honor, uh, the MacArthur Artistic Grant. And uh, Coleman is a shoe-in for this this year because he's, um, he's just that incredible musician. Here's what Miles Davis said about George Coleman. He said, when he heard the tapes, he said he'd never heard, uh, George had been with the band for about uh, a year and a half Miles said he never heard George Coleman play as well as he did on this set. So there you go. So that's the band. Miles Davis on trumpet, George Coleman, tenor saxophone, Herbie Hancock on piano, Ron Carter on bass, Tony Williams on drums. 
And we're going to listen to the, we're not going to hear the whole concert, but we're going to hear a very good portion of the concert as our jazz feature. And we're going to play the music in the order that the band played it. It came out on two uh, recordings. One of them was called My Funny Valentine, and the other recording was called Four and More. And they were issued um, in 1964, and uh, they were um, well distributed. And I know that these recordings uh, were the inspiration for so many musicians of a certain generation to pick jazz as their lifetime pursuit. These were very influential recordings, and also very influential recordings for Miles Davis, too. So, we take you back to February 12th, 1964, at the New Lincoln Center. One of my favorite uh, DJs, I have two. One of them is a guy that was um, on the, in Salt Lake City named Wes Bowen, and the other one was this guy, Mort Fega who operated out of New York, a very, very knowledgeable uh, DJ and well-respected by all the musicians. He's going to give you the spoken introduction, and then we get into the first piece of music, which Miles always opened his show with, the very famous So What. One more small thing, Miles' uh, repertoire had not changed in many years, and he's going to be playing a lot of the tunes that he's always played, but he's going to be, there's a whole new spectrum for these tunes. It wasn't until Wayne Shorter came into the band that the repertoire of this band changed. But the freshness of all these tunes is quite incredible, even though Miles had played them over and over and over again for years. So we open with So What? after the introduction. Then we go into this incredible version of Stella by Starlight by the band. And tune number three is a very exciting um, up-tempo blues that was uh, part of Davis's repertoire. features a great drum solo by Tony Williams called Walkin'. And um, we'll just go from there. So those are the three tunes that we're going to hear right from the get-go. And we open with Mort Fega's introduction to the band, here we go, our jazz feature this evening. My name is Mort Fega, and I think I should like to introduce you to the gentleman one at a time and tell you that this night uh, the proceedings here on stage are going to be recorded so that having enjoyed them out there this evening, you'll be able to enjoy them over and over again on the Columbia album that Miles is about to do. I'd like you to know a young man who has created quite a stir in the music world. His name is... Tony Williams, Tony Williams. And when you see this young man, you know there's a lot of good music yet to be made. I think Tony is about 19 years old. It's kind of scary that a young man should have so much talent. On bass, a gentleman who I'm sure you all know, Mr. Ron Carter, Ron Carter. I think we'll finish the rhythm section playing piano tonight. Herbie Hancock. And playing tenor saxophone 
And this fellow's going to scare you tonight if he hasn't already, I'm sure, Mr. George Coleman. George Coleman. And I know you have a big ovation for the gentleman who fronts this group, Miles Davis.
Thank you. 
Thank <laughs> you. 
our jazz feature this evening. Hope you didn't mind a few little miscues there because I was jockeying between uh, uh, two CDs. And you know how CDs are? They, they kind of cut off the applause and sometimes, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. So uh, aside from that, you heard um, a good portion of this uh, concert that took place February 12th, 1964 at the brand new Lincoln Center by the Miles Davis Quintet. And, of course, it came out on two original LPs that were just um, eaten up by everybody <laughs> when, they, when they came out on Columbia Records because uh, nobody had really heard um, I mean, those that weren't uh, in areas where Miles played. No one had really um, heard Miles play quite this way. And... Um, in 1964, there weren't that many live recordings issued by Miles Davis anyway. So uh, having a live or two live re, uh, recordings come out were um, made it very special. And, of course, this was a very special evening. It was a benefit concert where all the money, and the concert was very expensive for the time for uh, attendees, and it was a packed house. Um, it was a benefit for voter registration in Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama. Those uh, southern states um, prevented African Americans from registering to vote, even though it was legal. Uh, <laughs> you know how things were back then. And there was a lot of stuff going on um, in terms of uh, civil rights and all kinds of um, roiling going on in the United States of America, assassination of President Kennedy, the Vietnam War was looming on the horizon, and of course, civil rights, and uh, all that stuff that was happening down in Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana and the southern states. So, this concert was very special, and Miles and the Quintet donated their services, and um, these recordings were made. 
as I said, we heard the bulk of the concert this evening. And the people involved, of course, Miles on trumpet, George Coleman on tenor saxophone, Ron Carter on bass, Herbie Hancock on piano, and 19-year-old Tony Williams on drums. And the set began with uh, Miles Davis's great composition, So What? Then we went to this incredible version of Stella by Starlight, the ballad by Ned Washington and Victor Young. And then we went to uh, Joshua, a composition by Victor Feldman, and uh, that was appropriated by the Miles Davis Quintet. Then we heard uh, Miles Davis's composition, All Blues. Then this incredible ballad version of My Funny Valentine, the longest track. And uh, then we went to Walkin', a staple of the band, written by Gene Ammons and Richard Carpenter, and uh, a little bit of Miles' closing theme. And um, that's it. There's more from this concert, of course, but we did hear a very, very good part, and it made up the bulk of our jazz feature this evening. Recorded on Lincoln's birthday. Mm -hmm. That was significant, too, um, socially as well. And um, it was a Wednesday evening in New York City, February 12th, 1964. Historic for the quintet and Miles. Miles said that tenor saxophonist George Coleman never sounded better. And strangely enough, the, um, the recordings uh, initially were going to be rejected by everybody. They all, they all said that um, uh, they couldn't hear one another on the new stage because the acoustic bugs ha- had not been worked out. And... Uh, Herbie Hancock told me the story, and they, 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 uh, the band said, no, no, the recording, it'll sound terrible. It, it won't come out. The recording won't be issued. Uh, Columbia will just erase the tapes, and that's what they should do because it's going to suck. It's not going to sound good at all. And, of course, a few days after the concert, they went, uh, all went, the whole band went to the uh, Columbia Recording Studios, and they had the raw tapes there and played them for the band. And, of course, the whole band was just amazed at uh, the way they sounded. And Miles says, put this stuff out right now. <laughs> and that's what Columbia Records did. Uh, first of all, they issued one album called My Funny Valentine, and then they issued the second album called Four and More. So... Two classic recordings, and uh, that was our jazz feature this evening. So we hope you enjoyed it, and um, lots of Miles Davis. We're going to come back uh, right now with some um, music by the one and only Charles Mingus. And just like to remind you that you are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9. Or on your computer, www.citr.ca. My name is Gavin Walker, and uh, we have uh, this important announcement for you before we um, turn things over to uh, a great historic concert that took place with a Mingus big band recorded especially for this concert in 1972. But before that, we'll hear this.
well, the weather. <laughs> what can be said about the weather? It, it actually turned out to be not bad today, and um, I think it's going to be okay for the next uh, day or two. So tonight is cloudy with about a 30% chance of some drizzle and some fog patches overnight with a low of 3 then tomorrow will be um, cloudy with fog patches dissipating in the morning and then becoming a mix of sun and cloud for quite a pleasant day tomorrow uh, with a low of 3 and a high of 7. Then Wednesday's looking really good too. A mix of sun and cloud, low of 3 and a high of 7 once again. Then um, a downturn for Thursday, rain, with a low of 2 and a high of 9. Uh, Friday is cloudy with a 60% chance of a shower with a low of 5 and a high of 8. Uh, the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, rain uh, with a, a low of 6 and a high of 10. Well, 10 is uh, double digit, so it's um, tropical rain for Vancouver. Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, that's what's going on. Uh, not much to report on the weather. Not very inspiring, but that's the way it is. Keep your energy happening. Uh, keep your outlook positive, And uh, don't worry about the weather because... It's compared to the rest of the country, we're doing pretty well, let me tell you. All right, weather-wise, we, uh, we don't get much severe weather here. Maybe the odd windstorm and the odd uh, oddball snowstorm, but um, really, uh, there's not a lot to be troubled about until we get that big earthquake. Well, <laughs> we won't talk about that. Anyway, we'll be back with Charles Mingus right after this message. Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news, as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca. What we're going to hear now was really a concert celebrating Charles Mingus's return to jazz. He had been, he had uh, um, ill health and a whole variety of reasons. He basically stopped playing for several years, um, and he, he was seen um, grossly overweight, riding around on a bicycle. Uh, in Greenwich Village, um, um, those years that he was not performing, 67, 66 and 67, um, uh, people used to see him around. It was quite a sight seeing uh, 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 an extremely overweight Mingus uh, with, his, with his bow legs uh, riding a bicycle. It was almost, almost funny. But um, he slowly came back. Um, he, he put together a band and and uh, uh, because he he had told everybody that he was finished with music and 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 so on, and a lot of things had happened in his personal life. His health had taken a downturn. He was evicted from his apartment, which has been documented on film. That was a, a horrific event. Um, all kinds of stuff happening, but there was a positive uh, aspect of his life. He met Susan Mingus, who became his last wife. And uh, she is still devoted to Charles Mingus and preserves his legacy. Um, Susan Mingus has done a tremendous job. 
anyway, uh, Mingus started playing again, and of course he, um, the the jazz press, uh, uh, Mingus was kind of closed mouth about things. He said, "Yeah, I'm doing gigs. Uh, I'm playing. Uh, yeah, because I don't know anything else, and I have to make a living, and and that's all I that's all I can do is play the bass." And um, that was basically the extent of his interviews. He refused to say much. However, his career moved. He got he went to Europe a few times, um, and of course uh, bounced back. And this concert was kind of a celebration in 1972, February 4th, 1972, at Lincoln Center, the same uh, venue that we heard Miles Davis. Um, it was decided that uh, this was going to be a big event, welcoming Charles Mingus back um, uh, in some ways to, to, uh, to New York City um, to um, really have his rightful place in music and all this kind of stuff. And it was to be recorded by Columbia Records, and they did. And there were going to be all kinds of invited guests um, as well as this huge band that Columbia had uh, put together the money for Mingus to contract, and it was a huge band. I'm not going to run down all the personnel. Um, it's just it's the cream of the crop of New York musicians. And um, the host, the um, host of the show, is someone who has uh, uh, fallen onto dubious times today, but he has always been a great friend of jazz. And we're going to hear the voice um, of Bill Cosby introducing um, Mingus. And we're going to get into the first piece of music, one of my all-time favorite Mingus compositions, played by this huge band and featuring solos uh, on the first tune uh, by the gr- one of the first guests was the great Gene Ammons on tenor saxophone, who blows the house down with his huge sound. And Gene Ammons kind of resembles Charles Mingus. He looks like, he looks like Mingus' um, evil kid brother. <laughs> um, it's funny, there's, there's a resemblance between the two men. Anyway, uh, Gene Ammons is featured uh, on tenor saxophone on this first piece of music, Eddie Burt on trombone, longtime favorite of Mingus's, and um, a very, very good friend of mine, Charles MacPherson on alto saxophone, and Lonnie Hillier on trumpet. They do a, a kind of a dual solo together, uh, both of them playing together. The piece of music I'm talking about is called Jump Monk, and it's an old composition that Mingus uh, revitalized for the date and rewrote um, for the big band. Then we're going to hear a, a piece of music, um, which is kind of a tone poem, and again, it, it features Gene Ammons on tenor saxophone, as well as Bobby Jones, uh, Mingus's regular tenor saxophonist at the time, and trumpeter Eddie Preston. And it's an interesting title on this one. It's called Taurus in the Arena of Life. And it's a composition by Mingus, and of course, Mingus was born under the sign of Taurus. And um, the final tune we're going to hear in this set is another Mingus composition uh, that dates way back to the early 50s when he first came to New York. And um, it's a composition that he wrote called ESP. And it features um, two guests on here, Lee Konitz on alto saxophone, Jerry Mulligan on baritone saxophone, 
Um, once again, Gene Ammons on tenor saxophone and Lonnie Hillier on trumpet. So three tunes and uh, the spoken introduction, of course, as I mentioned before, is by Mr. Bill Cosby. And now the man this evening is for, and I think we should welcome him because it's been a long time. Ladies and gentlemen, this evening belongs to Mr. Charles Mingus.
Gene Evans.
A few selections from this historic concert by a huge ensemble put together by the one and only Charles Mingus. As I said, I'm not going to run through everybody in the band. This is too many to name. But we heard three tunes, and the MC uh, of this concert was somebody who has always been devoted to jazz and... Um, Regardless of uh, the recent uh, stuff that's happened to him, this is, uh, was done, as I said, in 1972. The, the MC, of course, was Bill Cosby. And um, the evening, as he said, belonged to Charles Mingus. And this was Charles Mingus's reintroduction and uh, the acknowledgement of his uh, prominence on the jazz scene. Columbia Records footed the bill for this... Um, expansive concert uh, where Mingus was able to um, to uh, form uh, a big band and uh, write arrangements for that band and, of course, um, all kinds of wonderful guests as well. And we heard several on uh, the three pieces that we heard. So uh, the first piece was uh, entitled Jump Monk, one of Mingus's uh, compositions from the mid-50s. The second piece was one that uh, is not heard very often. It's called Taurus in the Arena of Life. And um, first of all, Jump Monk 
uh, featured Gene Ammons on tenor saxophone, Charles McPherson on alto saxophone, and Lonnie Hillier on trumpet, um, soloing on that piece. Then we heard uh, Taurus in the Arena of Life with solos by Bobby Jones on tenor saxophone, who was Mingus's regular tenor saxophone player, Eddie Preston on trumpet, who was again a regular member of Mingus's small band, and guest Gene Ammons. Then the final tune was called ESP, and that was an even earlier composition that Mingus uh, wrote, about 1952, uh, when he first arrived in New York City and started doing music uh, under his own name. He wrote this piece of music, and it featured Lee Konitz, one of the guests on alto saxophone, along with Lonnie Hillier on trumpet, and guest Gene Ammons on tenor saxophone once again, and baritone saxophone giant Jerry Mulligan, ESP. Three tunes from this uh, historic concert, February 4th, 1972, at Lincoln Center. You are listening to The Jazz Show this evening, and my name's Gavin Walker, and we're going to carry on. Uh, We're also on the computer, which is uh, www.citr.ca. We're going to hear three tunes by a lady who will be performing here in Vancouver as part of a concert series put on by the Coastal Jazz and Blues Society. And you can... uh, Look up on their website, coastaljazz.ca, and uh, find out when this uh, uh, inimitable lady vocalist is coming to Vancouver. I'm talking about Sheila Jordan. She's uh, just celebrated her uh, 80th birthday, and uh, she's an amazing um, historical figure now in jazz. And I'm going to play you three tracks from the very first album, that she recorded for Blue Note Records, and it's called Portrait of Sheila. Now, Blue Note didn't record that many vocalists, and especially, um, generally, their, uh, what they recorded uh, instrumentally was mostly um, African-American musicians. Sheila Jordan is not African-American. She's Caucasian. And uh, this was kind of a, a change of pace for Blue Note Records, And also, the big change of pace was that they didn't do that many vocalists either. So she's in a very privileged position and certainly deserves it. Uh, She's heard on the first tune with just the bassist, Steve Swallow and Sheila Jordan, and a wonderful version of Bobby Timmons' great tune, Dat Dare. Then uh, we're going to hear a beautiful tune uh, by Hoagie Carmichael called Baltimore Oriole. And the final blues... Our final tune is a, a tune by Oscar Brown Jr., and it's called The Hum Drum Blues. And it features uh, uh, Barry Galbraith on guitar, Steve Swallow on bass, and Denzel Best on drums. So here then is the wonderful Sheila Jordan. Hey, mama, what that dare? Hey, why that under dare? And oh, mama, oh, hey, mama, hey, look it over there. Hey, where they going there? Hey, what they doing there? Hey, mama, can I have that big elephant over there? Hey, who that in my chair? Hey, what she doing there? And oh, mama, oh, hey, mama, hey, what that say up there? 
Hey mama, what's a square? Hey, where do we get air? Hey mama, can I have that big elephant over there? My quizzical kid, she doesn't want anything hit. She's forever demanding to know who, what, and why, and where. Inquisitive child, and sometimes the questions get wild. Like mama, can I have that big elephant over there? Wanna comb my hair? Hey, where my teddy bear? And oh, mama, oh, hey, look at that cowboy coming there. Hey, can I have a pair of boots like that to wear? Hey, mama, can I have that big elephant over there? The time will march, the years will go. The little lady's gonna grow. I gotta tell her all she'll need to know. I hope her alone. To know right from wrong, gotta make her strong. As life's parade goes trudging by, she'll need to know some reasons why I don't have all the answers. But I'll try as best as I can. Gotta help her to plan so she'll make her stand. You give the kid your best, and you hope she'll pass the test when you finally send her out into the world somewhere. Although she's grown, I'm betting I never am forget. Mama, can I have that big elephant over there? What they doing there? Hey, where they going there? And oh, mama, oh, hey, mama, hey, why dead under there? Hey, mama, what is fair? How come I gotta share? Hey, mama, can I have that big elephant over there? Yeah, mama, can I have that big elephant over there? Yeah, mama, can I? Thing. 
Like a dog, but I'm mighty poor. Ooh, I'm drum blues. Oh, buddy, it'll run you naughty when you find yourself in my shoes. Stumbling along with a humdrum blues. Don't know which way I'm going. I don't know which way I come from. Raining or shining or snowing. Everything's still so doggone humdrum. Love me, honey. I wish you would. Ooh, humdrum blues sure would do me the world of good. Ooh, humdrum blues. Ooh, baby, if you love me, maybe we can get together and lose those mean old humdrum blues. I'm drum blues. I'm drum blues. I'm drum blues. Sheila Jordan, <laughs> amazing. This was uh, from her very first recording on Blue Note Records, and uh, I said she was eighty. She's a little older than eighty. She's eighty-six. And still going strong, um, touring Europe and uh, throughout the States, still performing, still with that amazing energy. 86 years old and uh, carrying on. So she performed here with, uh, first of all, we heard just Sheila uh, and Steve Swallow on bass. And then she was joined by Barry Galbraith on guitar and Denzel Best on drums for the uh, second two tunes. The first tune, of course, was Bobby Timmons' Dat Dare. Second tune was Hoagie Carmichael's Baltimore Oriole. And the third tune was Oscar Brown's Hum Drum Blues. Sheila Jordan from her classic Blue Note album, Portrait of Sheila. 
we're um, going to just tell you about a couple of websites at this point. Uh, one of them, of course, is VancouverJazz.com. And um, as the cellar, of course, is uh, almost a year now that the cellar closed. It actually, it closed at the end of February last year. And we all miss it greatly because it was a focal point. And it was uh, one club where you could always say to people, well, you want to hear jazz? Go there. Um, and what's happening now, of course, is that there are places that have uh, um, kind of picked up the uh, momentum. Uh, I'm thinking of Pat's Pub uh, down in the downtown east side in the old Patricia Hotel. They're doing a really great job. They don't present jazz there every night, but there is a lot of jazz there, especially Saturday afternoons become very popular. And they also have special uh, jazz events that they promote as well. But Saturday afternoons from 3 to 7 at Pat's Pub. And uh, you're likely to hear some of Vancouver's finest musicians there. And, and there are lots of other uh, venues where they have uh, more eclectic kind of thing. Not a, not a jazz club per se, but at different venues. And uh, to do that and to get out and to get around, if you have a free night and want to go out and hear some music, then you... You pretty well have to go look it up on the web and say, oh, yeah, it's here uh, tonight, or somebody's playing there or here. So one of the best sites to go on is VancouverJazz.com because Brian Nation, who runs that site, posts all the uh, significant jazz gigs here in Vancouver. So any night of the week, uh, something is happening, and you can uh, check out that website and find out where it is happening. So there you go. So that's a good hint, and it's a great website. Uh, Brian Nation keeps it very up-to-date. VancouverJazz.com. And, of course, the other website to go to is the one I mentioned uh, referring to Sheila Jordan. That's CoastalJazz.ca. That's a very complete website as well, and that's the website of the Coastal Jazz and Blues Society. And they've got all kinds of big plans this summer, not only for the festival, but uh, they have some stuff happening before the festival as most people know um, the two-night ev- event um, with uh, Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett. And that's going to be huge. That is huge. And uh, two legends, really, uh, Lady Gaga from pop music and Tony Bennett from, uh, from pop and jazz. And uh, several generations separate them, but they communicate with music. And um, Tony's 88, she's 28. So <laughs> there you go. Um, both amazing performers and very, very talented people. So that's that's just one of the big events. And Coastal Jazz is bringing all kinds of stuff. Get onto their website, check them out, coastaljazz.ca. And, of course, my buddy Ken Speller, um, fine music teacher. He um, has a lot of students and um, is, is quite heavily booked. But uh, if you want to learn about the saxophone, clarinet, or the flute, He's a very, very good private tutor. And um, another thing that he does and that he's an expert in, and more and more musicians are getting hip to Ken, is his ability as a repairman. And so if you do play one of those instruments, whether you're an amateur, professional, um, student, whatever, and play a woodwind instrument, clarinet, flute, saxophone, and these instruments always need adjusting and, and, uh, and repairs and all that kind of stuff. And he can also assess your instrument. You can, you know, buy a saxophone and he can, ha- he can check it out for you and make sure it's operating at its peak. And uh, he doesn't charge. 
Um, he, I mean, obviously he charges, but he keeps his prices reasonable because he knows uh, musicians don't have an awful lot of money and, and uh, money's tight these days. And uh, the thing is, Ken has his own workshop in his own apartment, so he doesn't have that kind of uh, overhead um, that he has to pay for. And he's got everything you need to repair an instrument. So he's a good man to know, Ken Speller. Uh, you can reach him by phone, 778-800-1933, 778-800-1933, or K-Speller, K-S-P-E-L-L-E-R, underscore 14 at yahoo.ca, K-Speller, underscore 14 at yahoo.ca. Good man to know. All right. You are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or on your Computer, www.citr.ca. One of my favorite tenor saxophonists is the legendary J.R. Monterose. Frank Anthony Monterose, Jr., better known as J.R. Monterose. This is a, from a rare album that he did. Uh, it was recorded in Rock Island, Illinois. J.R. is kind of, a, kind of a gypsy cat. He's traveled all over. He likes. He always liked playing in in small joints. Didn't like the big thing, but he did record uh, for some um, significant people. Worked with Mingus for many years. Worked with Kenny Dorham, and uh, was a very very one of the individual voices of the tenor saxophone. Anyway, this was done on one of his travels out out uh, to the Midwest, and recorded in uh, a small studio in Rock Island, Illinois, in 1964 with um, a group of local musicians, including Dale Ayler on piano, who went on to uh, do studio work in Los Angeles, Gary Allen on bass, and Joe Abadili on drums, who owned a small club, and, um, and J.R., of course, on tenor saxophone. We're going to hear three tunes. Uh, the first one is a J.R. Monterose composition called Red Devil, and the second tune is his heartfelt rendition of Ram Ramirez's Lover Man. And the final tune is uh, J.R. Montero's original called Herky Hawks. So here we go, the individual voice of the one and only J.R. Montero's. Thank you. 
three tracks from uh, a rare album by J.R. Monterose on tenor saxophone with the Joe Abadili Trio with Mr. Abadili on the drums, Gary Allen on bass, and Dale Ayler on piano. Recorded in 1964 at uh, a small studio in Rock Island, Illinois. And J.R., as I said, was kind of a gypsy guy. He, was, he moved around a lot, and you never knew where he was going to show up. And uh, he headed out to the Midwest during the 60s and recorded this album, liked, uh, liked the guys and liked the rhythm section and stuck around, played at Joe Abadili's club, and they decided to do this album. And uh, it's a good one. We heard three tunes. We heard uh, J.R. Montero's original to kick off called Red Devil, then we heard, of course, a soulful rendition of Ram Ramirez's Lover Man. And the final tune was an up-tempo piece of music by J.R. called Herky Hawks. Yeah, J.R. Monterose in action with the Joe Abadili Trio. That's the official title of the album. We're going to turn now to uh, a drummer who uh, was on just about every recording in the 50s and 60s. I'm talking about the great New York drummer Arthur Taylor. And, of course, he was ubiquitous. He was on so many recordings, I'm sure he lost count. But he did very few recordings under his own name. Uh, One of them is this, and it was recorded for Blue Note Records, his only one under his name for Blue Note, and it's called A.T.'s Delight. A.T., of course, was his nickname, his initials. And um, Arthur Taylor picked some of his favorite musicians, the underrated and forgotten trumpeter Dave Burns, wonderful player, didn't record a whole lot, uh, was a great player, um, kind of overlooked and turned mostly in his latter years to teaching. Uh, wonderful player, you'll hear him here. On tenor saxophone, somebody who did become very prominent, Stanley Turrentine, Mr. T on tenor saxophone, Winston Kelly on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Carlos Patato Valdez, one of the great congueros. And we're going to hear two tunes. The first one is a composition by John Coltrane. And this is, as far as I know, one of the few versions um, away from, from, uh, from Coltrane's version. And it uh, was dedicated, uh, Coltrane wrote it for his little daughter. And um, he called it Saida's Song Flute. And uh, the second tune was written by the great trumpeter and arranged by him, Kenny Dorham. And he wrote uh, the second tune is called High Seas. So here then, two tunes from this Blue Note album, A.T.'s Delight, an ensemble led by Arthur Taylor. Thank you. 
We heard three tracks from actually a rare album because um, he didn't record that much under his own name. I'm talking about drummer Arthur Taylor, uh, who was on every second jazz recording in the 50s and 60s. Um, he got a couple of dates for Prestige Records, and he got one for Blue Note. And this is from the Blue Note date called A.T.'s Delight. And it featured Arthur Taylor on drums with the underrated trumpeter David Burns, Dave Burns. And on tenor saxophone, the unmistakably identifiable Stanley Turrentine, Winton Kelly on piano, Paul Chambers on bass. And we heard two tunes uh, that featured the quintet. Um, and the two tunes were uh, Saida's Song Flute by John Coltrane was the first and Kenny Dorham's uh, tune called High Seas that he arranged especially for the date. Then um, the band was joined by Ace Conguero Carlos Patato Valdez, and they did a version of Thelonious Monk's tune that he always used as a closing theme song, Epistrophe, and uh, that was the tune we heard, and that uh, closes our show for this evening. So we certainly hope you enjoyed it. We heard lots of music by Miles Davis, lots of music by Charles Mingus and some Sheila Jordan and uh, J.R. Monterose and um, Arthur Taylor. And uh, we hope that you uh, were able to stay around for a good part of the show. We'll be back next week, same time, same station, as the old cliche uh, says. And, uh, of course, we start at 9 and go on to uh, sometimes a little after midnight on The Jazz Show. My name is Gavin Walker, and uh, you, of course, are listening to CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. And we'll see you next Monday. Please drop around. Nine o'clock is the start and um, for another edition of The Jazz Show right here on CITR. Take care. See you in seven days. Bye-bye. Do-ba-dee-oo.